We're in 2 Samuel 7, a very important incident in the life of David in which he had an encounter with God. But before we get into that text, as we'll be looking at it throughout the, the sermon, I want to talk about something that is important to us as Americans, and that, it's, that is this rags-to-riches story that we tend to like. It's a, it's a story that's kind of woven deeply into American culture, this story of, of a man or woman who pulls himself up by their bootstraps, who emerges out of the chaos of their circumstances, is the self-made hero who goes from obscurity and poverty to wealth and fame. You think about people like uh, Dale Carnegie or even Walt Disney. Uh, you think about Henry Ford. Uh, you think about Steve Jobs. Uh, these, these are the characters that, that are the stars of this rags-to-riches story. I think it's especially meaningful for those of us who live in New England because the granddaddy of all rags-to-riches stories was a New Englander, uh, a man by the name of Benjamin Franklin who was born in Boston, Massachusetts. Benjamin Franklin was born as one of the sons of the 17 children of a soap maker, and he went literally from rags to riches. In fact, Benjamin Franklin is credited with as being the person who came up with the phrase, with the term rags to riches. And so this is almost a sacred virtue of our American culture. I think that's one reason why we find the life of David to be so fascinating. We, we see in this rags to riches story something that we all long to have for ourselves. Like, we want to be catapulted into everything that we've craved for and everything that we think will make us ultimately happy. And we see in the life of David, the youngest of eight sons, who didn't, kind of like a male Cinderella, he didn't get invited to the feast at which the future monarch was going to be chosen, and I think there's something in David's life that just resonates deeply with us. And beyond that, he's a very human character, right? He's a rugged dude. He can wield a sword better than anybody else, but he could also wield a pen and write moving poetry. I mean, he was both stately but passionate. He was both humble and, and like a, a, a king. that He eventually became the, the king. But that's not the, this, this direction of David's life is not the whole story of his life because David's life is not just a rags-to-riches story, it's also a riches-to-rags story. Because David, he, he reached the, the kingship, and then he began to decline, N not in terms of wealth, but really morally and politically. And David himself, shortly after he became the king, began to sow the seeds of the, ver the destruction of his very kingdom. And it makes sense then that because of the importance of David's life in the Bible, that you would read about him again and again and again. In fact, David is mentioned, the name David occurs more than 1,000 times in the Old Testament and uh, nearly 60 times in the New Testament. So David's a really important person. So we're not surprised about that. But what we find surprising is that about, uh, of all that's said about David's life, the episodes that we tend to remember are barely even mentioned after, after the historical books. You know, all the, the rags to riches or even the riches to rags stories that we really like, they're hardly even there. So what I want to do in this sermon, there are two parts. I want to trace David's life and then look at David's legacy, okay? David's life and David's legacy. And what I want us to be asking is, is this. As, as we go through the story of David's life, like the arc of David's life, going by arc, I mean the shape that goes from low 
up high, and then plunges down again. As we look at the arc of David's life, what of all the events do you think would be the most important event that gets talked about again and again? So David's legacy. So as we look at David's life, be asking, well then, given David's life, what is his legacy? So David's life and David's legacy. Look at the background of David's life. He rose out of the the chaos of a broken theocracy. There were prophets and priests that really failed in their responsibility to lead the nation Israel. We talked about Samuel last time. Samuel was a great prophet. He listened to the Word of God. But as it turned out, Samuel failed to pass on that piety, the God-fearing nature that he grew up with, to his sons. And they couldn't lead the nation of Israel like they should have. So prophets failed. Priests failed. If you read the book of Judges, priests did some horrible things. And so the people of Israel, they wanted a king, a secular king. They wanted someone who can focus and and specialize in military conquest and national protection. This is what they wanted, and they demanded a king, and, and Samuel said, okay, you want a king? Here's a king. Now, the king that came out of this demand was not David, but a man named Saul. And Saul was this uh, kingly-looking guy. He was as big as a moose, shy as a mouse. Right? He, he, in fact, when he was supposed to be elevated as king, he was hiding among the baggage of people. So he was this, this guy that was this really, really humble and self-effacing. But he began to decline when his own pride and his own stubbornness and disobedience started to take him down. In fact, if you think about it this way, David's rise and Saul's fall are like a seesaw. When one side goes up, the other side goes down. So David is going up at the same time as Saul is going down, like a seesaw. So David's going up, Saul's going down. And when Saul, in his final act of disobedience, after his final act of disobedience, God tells the prophet Samuel, go and anoint a new king. And so Samuel goes to the sons of Jesse. And the sons show up, seven of them, handsome, strong, eligible, manly, march by Samuel. God keeps telling Samuel, this is not the one. This is not the one. And finally, Samuel asks Jesse, Jesse, don't you have any other sons? Like, I'm pretty sure God asked me to come to this place and said that one of your sons are going to be annoyed. Don't you have any other sons? And it's, it seems like, almost reluctantly, Jesse says, well, I do, the youngest, but he's, he's watching the sheep. Samuel says, bring him here. He comes, and God tells Samuel, this is the one that will be the king. Samuel anoints him. He pours oil over his head as a symbol of the responsibility that he's going to bear. But at this point, David is just a teenager. But the event that really catapults David into prominence is our favorite David story, and that is David's Goliath, David and Goliath. See, the Philistines and the Israelites were at war with each other, and they, were, they arranged themselves on either side of a valley like a boy's plastic toy soldiers, just kind of frozen in place. No one wants to make a move. And finally, the Philistines come up with a solution. They decide to make this a conquest of champions or a contest of champions. Let's send out champions and have them fight each other. And, and to avoid so much bloodshed, then that will be the deciding factor. And so the Philistines send out their champion, 
And the problem for the Israelites is that their champion was a seasoned warrior, nine feet tall, named Goliath. Goliath comes out. And he is strutting around like a peacock and bellowing like an ape. He's saying, I defy the armies of Israel. Now, it just so happened that David, who was not old enough to be a soldier at this point, in fact, he was just still a shepherd, he was on a mission to take food to his brothers. And while he was dropping off some bread and cheese for his brothers, he overhears this giant Philistine mocking the armies of Yahweh God. And here's where we get a glimpse into the heart of David. We see this teenage boy who has developed such a love for God, hearing those words of mockery, it's like sending sparks into dynamite. Because he may not know everything there is to know about fighting and swords and shields and spears and javelins, but he does know something, and that is Jehovah God is strong enough to take this guy down. And there is one God, and he will not be mocked. And this God that David loved and served and feared was a God who had rescued him in time past. And David is walking around saying, what's going what's to be done about this? Finally, he volunteers. He actually goes to King Saul, and he volunteers to be the one to go out and face Goliath, this, this boy inexperienced against this gigantic warrior. This is a story we love, isn't it? The underdog taking down the big guy. And David's words in this incident, this is from 1 Samuel chapter 17, his words from this incident encapsulate that the life and heart of someone who's passionate for the glory of God. You come to me, he says to Goliath, with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the strength and the power and the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he says, right before he slings the stone into the forehead of this giant, the battle belongs to the Lord. And after that victory, David, David's rise continues, and Saul begins to decline. David becomes an army commander, becomes incre incredibly popular. The women are singing a song that Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. That was not a popular song for Saul. And so David became a fugitive. The insecure, arrogant Saul was pushed over the edge by this threat to his throne. And during this time... Uh, David is running away from Saul. He has multiple opportunities to, to kill Saul. In fact, opportunities that seem like they're divinely arranged. But David won't do it. He waits on God's timing. And finally, when Saul dies at the hands of the Philistines, some time after that, David becomes king. He consolidates his reign at Jerusalem. He suppresses his enemies. He has his capital city. And now he wants to crown his achievements with this final one, that we read of in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He wants to build a house for God. You notice initially, if you open to 2 Samuel chapter 7, you see in verse 2, the king said to Nathan, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan, his initial response to David is to do everything, that's whatever is in his heart, because the Lord is with you. But God reveals something to Nathan, and that is that David will not be the person to build a house. And in this reversal, 
God tells David something. David, you want to build me a house? I'm actually going to build you a house. See, for David's, the word house, David is thinking a dwelling place for God. And God, in this play on words, he says, I'm going to make a dynasty for you. And it's after this event that David begins to decline. And his fall is accelerated by his disastrous sin with Bathsheba. This is an incident that we're going to talk about next week as we look at this moment in David's life when he realizes that he is the person who has sinned after he's confronted by Nathan. He, in his desperate attempt to cover up his sin, he brings Uriah's husband back from the battlefield. He tries to get him to go home with his wife, and he refuses to do that. Uriah refuses to do that. And so finally, in his last-ditch effort to cover his sin, he sends Uriah back into the battlefield with sealed orders. And for all we know, Uriah had no idea that the parchment that he carried was his own death warrant, commanding him to go into the very worst part of the battle so he will certainly be killed. And after this, things begin to spiral out of control, like dominoes knocking each other down. The baby that David and Bathsheba conceived died. One of David's sons rapes one of David's daughters. David does nothing, and so another one of David's sons, Absalom, kills the rapist. And then when David still neither refuses, neither restores, nor disciplines Absalom, Absalom begins to form a conspiracy against David, resulting in David finally actually having as the king to flee his own capital city. Near the end of David's life, David's sinful choice is responsible for the death of thousands of his own people. Here's a guy who went from rags as a, as a shepherd boy all the way to the riches of being a king, and now as king, he begins to plummet and fall politically and morally. This is, this is a tragic story. That's David's life. That's the arc of David's life. Now, let me ask you this. What is David's legacy? But of all the events that you'd think David would be remembered for, of all the events that would be stand out as the most important part about David's life, what would it be? We would think that it would be the story of David and Goliath. That's the one we like. That's the hero story. That's the rags to riches story. That's the story of the underdog defeating the giant. That doesn't get a mention. We might think it's the story of David and Bathsheba, this tragic story of a man who used his prestige and his power to sin and then try to cover up his sin with murder and how his kingdom began to spiral out of control. That's hardly ever mentioned. See, the episode that is foundational to David's legacy for the rest of the Bible was the one that we read in 2 Samuel 7. The thing that is most important about the life of David, in other words, is not something that he did for God. Neither was it something that he did against God. The most important thing about David's legacy, in fact, wasn't anything he did at all. It was something that God did for him. It was something that God, God said, I am going to make a promise with you, 
and one of your sons is going to sit on a throne, and he will reign forever and ever. David, you can't do anything about that. In fact, you're going to be dead and gone by the time this son is finally born. The most important thing about you, David, God is saying to David, it's not what you can do against me or do for me. It's what I am going to do for you. Now, that is grace. That is undeserved favor. And we ourselves, we love that rags-to-riches story, but there's something deeply wrong with it. For one thing, it puts tremendous pressure to achieve. And once we've achieved to have a white-knuckled grip on that achievement, I mean, isn't it true that you and I tend to define ourselves in terms of something we've done in the past, whether good or bad? Some achievement, some accomplishment, some success, some failure, some embarrassment, some wrong, whether suffered or inflicted. I got accepted into that program. I didn't get accepted. I got that job didn't get that job. I raised children I'm proud of. I raised children that are disappointment. I overcame in this particular area of my life, or I failed in this particular area, and that tends to be the thing that defines us. And the life of David, and, and through the thing that we read in the rest of Scripture that's most important of David, was not his success, and it wasn't his failures. It wasn't anything he had done. It was something that God did for him. There's something wrong with this rags-to-riches narrative that we cherish in our hearts. It's unrealistic, but there's an even deeper problem about it, and that is that everyone, no matter how dazzling their rags-to-riches story, everyone ends the same way. All the men that I named near the beginning of this message they're all dead. See, every person who has ever walked the face of the earth except for Jesus Christ faces two insurmountable obstacles, and that is their sin and their death. Their personal flaws and failings and their mortality. And that levels everyone. All the same. This rags-to-riches story we find is an unrealistic thing. It's like a poet said, the glories of our blood and state are shadows, not substantial things. There is no armor against death lays his icy hand on kings. It levels us all. This, this rags-to-riches story, while we may cherish in our heart, it, we have to accept the fact that it's, it's unrealistic and it's doomed to fail. And so what happens to David's legacy then? What happens to this promise that God had made to David that he would have this descendant that would sit on his throne and, and reign forever and ever? As you read, as you continue to read throughout the historical books, the kings that follow David, it, it's like the narrator has the spotlight and he's searching for the king that will finally live up to the David ideals yet without the sin of David. It's like this swinging spotlight 
After the reign of David, his son Solomon reigned. And then after Solomon reigned, the, the Israel was split into two kingdoms, the north and the south. And, and the narrator is almost moving a spotlight up and down, up and down. Who will be that perfect king? Who will be that forever king? Will it be in the north? Will it be in the south? He goes back and forth. Where is this king going to come from? When will he reign? And as the search for the perfect Davidic king continues, the job profile begins to grow. Whoever this king must be, he must not only reign forever, but he must be perfect perfect. He must be a friend of the oppressed and an enemy of the oppressor. He must be able to usher in worldwide peace and prosperity. He must be a king who can bring men and women, boys and girls, into a right relationship with God. This must be a divine king as this job profile begins to expand for who this descendant of David would be. And that's why it's so significant that when you get to the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament are saying that this peasant carpenter named Jesus from the little town of Nazareth is the son of David. What do they mean by that? They're identifying him as that ultimate Davidic king. The angel that was announcing the birth of Jesus, he said this very thing. He said, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And in words that echo God's promise to David, the angel says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. No end to his kingdom. No end chronologically. No end spatially. There will be no end to the kingdom of this person who was born in that first century and whom the angels announced as the son, the descendant of David. But it wasn't until Jesus rose from the dead that it became crystal clear, beyond a shadow of a doubt, why it was that this person was the David king. Because Jesus, of all the descendants of David to be born on the earth, was the only one who never, ever gave in to those two obstacles that, has le that have leveled everybody. He never sinned, and he defeated death. Remember I said that this American dream, this this rags-to-riches story is unrealistic because we all have to confront our failures and we all have to confront our mortality. Well, here's a man who never sinned, and here's a man who was raised from the dead. This Jesus of Nazareth must be the Davidic king, and this is what Peter is preaching, and I'll read these verses to you from Acts chapter 2, verses 29 to 32. He says this, after the resurrection of Jesus, after Jesus ascended to heaven, and people are wondering, what in the world is going on? But Peter says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on a throne, he for saw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God, raised up, and of this we are all witnesses. This is the message about Jesus, the true son of David. But this points to something else about the life of Jesus. Remember I said that David's life was kind of like an arc, like rags 
to riches and then begin to fall again. Jesus' life was just the opposite. Jesus turned that ark upside down. Jesus was in the form of God. He was equal with God. Yet he did not think it robbery, and he did not think it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. He took on flesh. He became obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. As Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, and because of this, God has highly exalted him and given him, Jesus, a name that is above every name, above the name of David and above the name of any human hero you could possibly think of. It's the name Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's who our Jesus is. He is the one that offers to us what we so crave, and that is his perfect righteousness. And it is true that like our beloved David, the most important thing about you is not what you have done for God, nor is it what you have done against God. The most important thing about you is what God can do for you through Jesus Christ. And what does he do? He offers to take your rags in exchange for his riches. His robes for mine. This is what Jesus does for us. You think of all the chaos of your life and all the things that you're wrestling through and all the things that you need to be changed. You're all your attempts to be that self-made person. There's only one hero who can do anything for you that you truly need, and that is King Jesus. Here's the question that we need to ask ourselves. Are we trusting him? Are we obeying him? This is what God calls you to do. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be safe. Believe on the only one who can do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And if you've never done that before, that's your greatest need, to see in Jesus the one and only one who can save you. And if you've done that, here's what you need to do. You need to submit every area of your life to him so that he can be king of every territory in your heart. And what is it today? What is it today for you that King Jesus has yet to conquer? Is it how you think? Is it how you spend your time how you use your phone, something in your relationship with another person. Let Jesus be Lord of that. And that way, you can have a story too, a story of God's grace overcoming your guilt. Let's bow our heads and we'll pray.